probably find it helpful to have that passage uh, open in front of you, back in John's Gospel, uh, chapter 1. We've been looking over the last few weeks at the the Christmas story in John. This is a bit after the Christmas story. Uh, I think uh, it's okay, though, to do that because it's now after Christmas. That's why you can sing about Three Kings as well, because that was after Christmas uh, as well. But we're going to look at that passage in uh, John chapter 1. And a question to start you off this morning that you might have been asked at some point in your life. Have you found the one? Have you found the one? That's a question I used to get asked quite a lot by my friends. Have you found the one? Have you met the one? Do you believe in the one? And it's a surprisingly common idea in our society, which actually normally tends towards the scientific uh, more than the spooky, that actually there's this idea that there's someone that you're really supposed to meet, a special person set apart just for you, your perfect match, someone you're almost destined to be with. Do you believe in the one? Well, this morning we're going to talk about another one. One who is special. One who is destined to be the one. One who is there for us. Not a romantic partner, but the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning as our Christmas series comes to a close, we're going to finally meet the one that we've been talking about. The one who is the eternal word, if you remember from the first week. The one who is the bright light shining in the darkness. The one who is full of grace and truth. But the twist is this morning that it's not going to be exactly as we might have thought. It's not going to be exactly as we might have expected from what we've seen so far. So the first thing we're going to see as we look at the Lamb is that John is not the one or one of the three. Let me read to you again verses 19 uh, to 28. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one. Crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they have been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptising. Now it seems as we look at this uh, part of the passage, that there's some confusion about God's plan. We get this group of Jews, uh, priests, Levites sent from Jerusalem, and they're a bit confused about what's going on. Now they've been sent almost certainly from something called the Sanhedrin, that was the, the ruling body of the Jews. And the priests and Levites were sort of like their police force, if you like. It was their job to enforce the law and to keep their religion in order. And that included claims to be the Messiah. It was their job to sort of police those sorts of things. If John was claiming to be the Messiah, then actually they needed to find out. And it wasn't as though John would have been the first. In history, you have people like Athrogenes, apparently, in 3 AD, who claimed to be the Christ. He was a shepherd. 
Even within the New Testament, you get Judas and Judas the Galilean, who are mentioned as possible claimants to the title of Christ. All these trees had started rebellions, and Rome had had to crush them. So it's likely that the Sanhedrin want to know what's going on. They want to know if somebody else is claiming to be the Christ. So, was that what he was doing? Is he baptising because he's the Christ? Is he going to try and lead a rebellion against the Romans? Well, John preempts them, doesn't he? Verse 2. Sorry, verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So they ask him who he is and immediately says, I'm not the Christ. But their questioning doesn't stop there, does it? John is evidently having such a big impact on the nation that he must be somebody. So they want to find out who he is. They press him more. Now, the Jews at the time thought that there'd be three people who came before the end of the world. There was the Christ, there was Elijah, and there was the prophet. The Christ was to come, well, because of all the prophecies that you hear uh, at Christmas time, don't you? So I've put one on the back of your notice sheet. Isaiah 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be of no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So they were looking forward to a king who would sit on David's throne, who would rule forever, the Christ. They were looking forward to Elijah because of a prophecy in Malachi. Again, that's on the back of your notice sheets. Malachi 4 verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they were waiting for Elijah. Juice to this day set a table at their Passover feast for Elijah just in case uh, he comes. And then there was also supposed to be the prophet because of Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that's like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And John disavows all three. Now this causes us some slight problems though if you think about it. Because actually this is probably as close as you get to a contradiction uh, in the Bible. There are no contradictions in the Bible, just to clarify. But I think this is almost as close as you get. John says that he's not Elijah. But Jesus says in Matthew 11, 13 and 14... For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Or Matthew 17 verses 11 to 13. He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. There's also a quote as well to um, uh, Zachariah's father, uh, sorry, his father Zachariah from the angel of the Lord that said that he will go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah, turning the hearts of fathers to their children. So is it a contradiction? Well, no, it's not a contradiction. It really revolves around the question of, well, who is John the Baptist? Is he Elijah? And the answer is yes and no. Yes and no. Yes, he is, because he was the one that was foretold. He was the one that was to herald the coming of the Messiah and the end of the world. So in that sense, yes, he is Elijah. But also, no, he isn't. He didn't come down in a chariot of fire the way that Elijah left. 
He was born as a baby. We're told that in the Gospels. But he's not some sort of reincarnation of Elijah either. He is John. So he is Elijah and he's not Elijah. He's the Elijah that was to come. So when he says to the, the Levites and the priests that he's not Elijah, he is telling the truth. But it's a bit more complicated perhaps than he's letting on. So John is sort of Elijah, but the other two figures are actually Jesus. Jesus, the fact that Jesus is the prophet is alluded to in Acts 3 and Acts 7. And we know that Jesus is the Christ because we call him Jesus Christ, don't we? And so does the Bible. But by denying that he is any of these things, he prompts their next question. Have a look at verse 22. So they said then, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John answers them by quoting Isaiah 40. Now, if you could turn to Isaiah 40, you'd find it quite helpful. Someone want to shout out a page number for uh, Isaiah 40 from the different Bibles? 668 for the... The big one? Oh, there. So 668... 347 in the small one. 668 in the big one, 347 in the small one. Let me read to you uh, the first five verses. This is what John is quoting. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So as we read John quoting Isaiah 40... We mustn't rip it out of context because John isn't ripping it out of context either. What he wants us to think about is this section in Isaiah. It's the beginning of a new section. It's the sort of turning of the tide in the book of Isaiah. The beginning of the servant songs. The beginning of a section promising a return from exile. That's actually what that highway is about. The Jews were out in all sorts of different places in different countries. And God is promising a road, if you like, to bring them back. He's going to flatten all the mountains. He's going to raise all the valleys and they're going to come home from exile. So God is promising an end to their alienation from God. And here is John declaring that it's now coming. God is returning to his people and making a way for his people to return to him. Now the priests and Levites, they seem to see that as a bit of an anticlimax. Oh, so you're not Elijah, you're not the Christ, you're not the prophet. But actually, do you see that? Actually, this is huge. Look at how this ends in Isaiah 40. Have a look at 9 and uh, 9 to 11. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news, literally gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might. And his arm rules with him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. 
He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are young. Do you see what's actually happening in Isaiah 40? Do you see what the herald is proclaiming? God is coming. God is going to turn up on the scene. And he will rule as shepherd king. So far from being an anticlimax, he's actually telling them something massively important. He's actually telling them the information they really want to know. The Messiah is coming. God is going to show up. And he is the herald to the Messiah. He's the harbinger of the age to come. And the end of the age that is. But the Levites and the priests, they, they entirely miss it, don't it? Don't, um, don't, don't they? And we're given a little hint of the battle to come. If you turn back to uh, John's Gospel. John sort of sticks in a little detail that he hasn't told us before. Just to sort of heighten the tension. Have a look at verse 24. Now they've been sent from the Pharisees. Interesting, isn't it? That he just puts that in at that point. That's why it's in brackets. It's almost as though it doesn't quite fit in the, the flow of the story. But what we see now is that now they, they think this is an anticlimax, now they think this isn't important. Now actually they're going to turn on John. They're going to start to persecute him. And actually as you read John's Gospel, as you read the other Gospels, the Pharisees are the main opponents, aren't they? They're the ones that are going to turn out to be the bad guys. Despite the fact that you actually expect them to be on Jesus' side. I mean, they were the shining ones. That's what Pharisees mean. They were the moral crusaders. They were the theologically orthodox. And yet, they have no love for Jesus. They oppose him time and again. And that explains what happens next. Have a look at verse 25. They asked him, Then why are you baptising, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And I think their, their, their questioning takes on a bit more of a judgmental tone. Who told you you could baptise? Who authorised you to do this if you're not one of the three big hitters? Now, baptism was not unheard of in Jesus' day. It was around, but it was generally for Gentiles, non-Jews, wanting to attach themselves to the Jewish religion. That's what baptism was for, to sort of wash them, to cleanse them from their Gentileness, their, their filthiness. But John was baptising Jews. And that is something new. He seemed to be suggesting, by doing that, didn't he, that Jews needed cleansing too. He seemed to be suggesting that Jews were actually away from God and needed to be brought in. Exactly what announcing the end of the exile was suggesting, wasn't it? That the Jews are far away and need bringing in. So John is doing something new and they don't like it. Hang on, John. We're already back, aren't we? We're already part of God's people. We don't need washing. Now, new teaching, well, that could be accepted if you were the Messiah or Moses or Elijah. But not some two-bit startup. Who does this man think he is? Well, John makes his position clear, doesn't he, in verses 26 and 27. John answered them, I baptise with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy 
to untie. He's saying here, yeah, I'm nobody in effect. But there's somebody here who is somebody. Someone they don't know. Now remember, as we've seen from the the previous passages, when Jesus comes into the world, the world does not recognise him. They don't know him. But John is saying, here is someone I'm not even worthy to tie the shoelaces off. That sort of thing was done by a Gentile slave. They wouldn't even let Jewish slaves do that. He's saying, I'm lower than a Gentile slave in comparison to this person. So ironically, they've got the right place. They've got the right time for the Christ, but they've got the wrong person. The one, the true one, has yet to be revealed. But all that is about to change. Jesus, in fact, is the one. Have a look at verses 29 to 31. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. Jesus finally appears on the scene right at the end of chapter 1. And John announces him to the nation as the Lamb of God. Now if John's title was a bit obscure, you know, from Isaiah 40, then this one is even obscurer. Because the Lamb of God wasn't predicted in the Old Testament, if you like. It wasn't a specific title given to the person to come. And like John, it's a bit ambiguous in what he says. More ambiguous than actually I personally realised until I started preparing this this week. Because actually, they had this idea at the time, apparently, according to, according to Don Carson. You can, you can generally rely on Don Carson, can't you, to get it right. Um, he said this, Several have observed that Second Temple Judaism sometimes spoke rather confusingly of a warrior lamb. God's people may be likened to a weak lamb, sheep sent to the slaughter, but one day this lamb will be a warrior. And he goes on to explain how that fits uh, with the context. The taking away is a slightly different uh, word from normal. There have been several books written between the Testaments that point to this idea of this warrior lamb who comes to execute judgment on the Lord's enemies. It could be in Revelation 6 when it talks about the wrath of the lamb that's to come that perhaps it's picking up on that idea. But if you think about it this way, if the lamb that comes is there to take away the sin of the world, it takes again a bit more of a sinister edge, doesn't it? It's coming to execute judgment on sin. Elsewhere in the ESV, the word that's used there to take away, it's not the normal word. It's used to purge or to persecute, or to punish, or to sweep away like a flood. He has come to purge the sin of the world. Which gives it a slightly different emphasis to what we might think. Now it might be that that's what John means, John the Baptist. It might be that that's what his hearers understood. But as several people have noted, there are people who speak better than they know sometimes in the Bible. They speak what they don't know. Because the biblical image of the lamb is not of a warrior lamb, is it? It's of a sacrifice. A sacrifice for sin. And especially as the lamb image is picked up, the Passover lamb. The lamb whose blood was shed and spread on the doorposts of every house uh, of uh, Israel in Egypt. The lamb that was killed for the rescue 
from the wrath that God was going to bring on Egypt. And it's almost certainly what John the author has in mind as he quotes John. So John the author is is using his words, but John the author almost certainly has in mind the idea of Jesus as a Passover lamb. Throughout the gospel, he will portray Jesus as the better lamb, the better sacrifice. At the end of the gospel, which we'll look at at Easter time, we'll see that John even makes it so that Jesus dies at the time that the yearly Passover lamb is sacrificed. He makes it really clear that that's when Jesus is dying. He's the one that quotes the fact that not a bone will be broken in Jesus' body. Now most of we think, oh yeah, that's a prophecy to do with Jesus. Well, it is a prophecy to do with Jesus. But it's actually a quote about what the Passover lamb was to be. It couldn't have any broken bones. So that's what the author, John, wants us to see. That he is the Passover lamb. But you might be thinking, well, so what? Great, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Great. What now? Well, it means that actually with the arrival of Jesus on the scene as this greater lamb, a greater exodus can take place. A greater rescue than than took place with Moses. A rescue from sin itself. A return to God. God will call mankind back from its exile outside of Eden and bring them into his glorious kingdom. And that's something that we can be part of, isn't it? This lamb didn't just die for one Israelite household in Egypt. This lamb died for the whole world. All of God's people, Jewish, Gentile, black, white, male, female, old, young. That could include you this morning. But if Jesus is the Passover lamb, then we need to think how that imagery applies to us. Have you put Jesus' blood on the front door of your life? Have you put his blood on the the lintels, if you like, the the bits that go round the door of your life? People put all sorts of things on their front door, don't they? Uh, I've noticed this time of year that quite a lot of tacky things go on people's doors. Uh, We had a wreath up last year. We decided not to put it up this year because the wind kept blowing it away last year. We had to go chasing it down the road uh, a couple of times. But people put strange things, don't they, on their front doors. But people put all sorts of things on the front doors of their lives too. And really it's answering this question, pass over me with your wrath because of this. That's what's on the front door of people's lives. For John's here is what they might have put on their front door is I'm Jewish. Pass over me God, you should pass over me because I'm I'm Jewish. For us it's more likely something like pass over me because I'm respectable, I'm good. For many, I guess, they leave that door that they actually leave that note on the door that they actually leave on their real front door. You know, no callers, leave me alone, I'm okay as I am. But actually what we need on our front door is the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. And John was sent to show us this. He was sent to reveal Jesus, the greater one who outranks John because he was before him. That's a bit of a strange statement, isn't it? Because again, we know from the Gospels that John was six months older. We know from John's Gospel that John's ministry started before Jesus as well. Could it be that he's alluding to the pre-existence of Jesus? The eternity of the word? Either way, he's saying, I'm not the main act. I'm not the guy. I'm not the one. Jesus is. 
He's saying, I, I baptize with common water. You can get it anywhere. Jesus, on the other hand, will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Not some extra experience, despite what you might hear. He's saying that as the Spirit remained on Jesus here, so he will give the Spirit to others. John pours out water. Jesus pours out the Spirit. Jesus is the one, not John. And crucially for John the author, it's not just him that's saying that. Our final point is, there are three witnesses to the one. Have a look at verses 32 to 34. Actually, just look at verse 32. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend on him like a dove, and it remained on him. The first witness that we get to the one is the Spirit. The Spirit descended on Jesus and remained on him. So what it's saying here, God himself is bearing witness to the fact that Jesus is the one. The Spirit remains on him. It's mentioned twice there in verse uh, 32 and then again uh, in verse 33. And that should start alarm bells ringing. Well, why does he mention it twice? It seems a little bit strange. Now, it is saying, well, the Spirit doesn't fly away like a dove. It remained on him. He still has the Spirit throughout his whole ministry. But there's a little bit more going on as well. Uh, On the back of your notice sheets, you'll see there's Isaiah 11, uh, verses 1 and 2. And it's almost certainly what it's alluding to. This is what it says. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's uh, David's father. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The thing that was prophesied in the Old Testament was that this servant, this amazing king, would have the spirit rest on him, remain on him, stay on him. It was showing that he is this branch of David. This stump of Jesse. He is the Messiah. So the Spirit, by remaining on him, yes, it's saying that he still had the Spirit, but it's saying he's this Spirit-filled king that was promised in the Old Testament. But it's not just the Spirit that uh, witnesses. Have a look at verse 33. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptise with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptises with the Holy Spirit. What it's saying here, actually, is that God the Father is a witness here as well. The one who sent John the Baptist uh, to baptise was God the Father. God the Father testifies to Jesus. He tells him what to expect. In the other Gospels, he does so audibly, doesn't he? Actually, at Jesus' baptism, he says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And his message here is the same, isn't he? John gets it, verse 34. And I've seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. That's when Jesus is declared to be the Son of God at his baptism. And John the Baptist understands it. He's our last witness. He's our witness number three. John the Baptist. Uh, Verse 34 again. And I've seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. So according to John the Baptist, Jesus is the Son of God. He no doubt heard the pronouncement of God on Jesus. The Lamb is also the Son. So in this passage, we actually have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all in one passage. 
And for John, the author, the son is a crucial title for Jesus. It's not just meaning that he's the Messiah. It's meaning that he really is the eternal son of God. The eternal son of the eternal father. And John is a witness to this. But why is he giving us all these witnesses? Why is he telling us this? Well, John is trying to convince us that Jesus really is the one. Let me read to you from the end of John's gospel. This is why John tells us he's writing what he's writing. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John, throughout his gospel, presents witnesses Seven key ones, John the Baptist being one of them, the first one. But as witnesses go, the Holy Spirit and God the Father are not bad ones, are they? Uh, To tell you who Jesus is. John is telling you this because he wants you to believe that Jesus is the one. So what would it take to convince you that he really is? Who would you have as your witness, if you like? John is giving us all these people. I remember being on beach missions a number of years ago. This will tell you how many years ago it is when I tell you the story. There was a girl on, on, the, on the beach who said, I will only believe if somebody very special comes and tells me that Jesus really is, is real and is the Christ. I said, oh, who, who is that? He said, Gareth Gates. I want Gareth Gates to come and tell me. That was the time of when Pop Idol I was on, something like 2002. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting enough, he used to go to church. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe it could have happened. Um, I remember talking to students and saying, what would it take for you to believe? What possible authority is high enough to tell you? What if you could read it on Wikipedia? Would you believe it if you could read it on Wikipedia? Well, everyone said, no, that would be ridiculous. But we don't realise actually every authority is the same like that, isn't it? What can you trust to tell you about God? Well, actually, in the end, only God is good enough to tell you about God, because God is the only one that we can trust. He's given us the Bible as a witness as well to who he is. He's given us people down through the ages who have tried and tested the truth of his word again and again. And actually, we need to trust in God. I know that creates a bit of a logical problem, though it does depend where you start. But actually, God is witness to who God is, that Jesus is the one, is God. And as we approach the new year, we need to take the word that God has given us and believe it. We actually need Jesus to be our one, not just the one. No one else close to Jesus. No one else will do. No one else can be the one. Only our precious Lord Jesus. So I'll finish with a question that I started with. Have you met the one? Well, there's time before the new year begins to meet with the one. There's time next year to get to know Jesus as the one, our one. And enjoy him afresh in his word, by his spirit. So let's pray that God would help us to do that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that Jesus is the one. Father, thank you that he came into our world, that the spirit testified to who he was, that the father testified to who he was, that John testified to who he was and who he is. And Father, we pray that he would be our one. Father, pray that we would have his blood on the doorposts of our life. Father, pray that we would trust in him alone for our standing before you. And we ask it in his name. Amen.